0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Artbox. I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I sit down with Phil Burningberg in his studio. Phil is a studio arts putter with over 20 years experience. He's also a geologist and ceramics engineer as well. He is a professor of ceramics in the master's program at Hood College in Frederick, Maryland. His main interests are in creating sculptural ceramics with both functional and non-functional and contributing to education to the ceramic arts, in particular, teaching the technical background of ceramics and its importance in relationship to art pottery. His background has included just about every aspect of ceramic processing. He's operated Apron Full of Gold Pottery School in Winthrop, Maine, he was an instructor at Glen Echo Pottery and Glen Echo Maryland for 10 years, and an instructor at Bill Van Geider's Frederick Pottery School for two years. In 2004, he served as a technical editor for Ceramics Monthly Magazine. And with that, let's go to the interview. All right, well, Phil, I want to say thank you first and foremost for uh, sitting down with me and having an interview here in the studio. Happy to do it. I wanted to ask you first and foremost, Uh, How did you get started in
1: this path that you're on now? I guess, it, and actually ceramics was sort of almost a second or a diversion. Originally, I went to school for geology. My undergraduate and graduate degrees are in geology. And when I got out of graduate school, nobody was hiring geologists. So I just finished two years in, of graduate school. And I actually got to the point where I had $14 left in the bank. And I was looking at next year's tuition bills. And I thought, this isn't going to work. I'm going to have to get a job. So I, I, I was living in Boston at the time. I got a copy of the Boston Globe and looked in the, started looking in the health one sections just for some place to start. And the first ad I looked at happened to be for exactly the specialty I had been doing in graduate school, which was X-ray crystallography, which was the X-ray analysis of minerals but it was in geology. And the the job was with an aerospace company that wanted somebody to do X-ray analysis of ceramics and advanced materials, aerospace materials. So I I ended up leaving geology, or at least the study of geology, to go into ceramics. And basically ceramics are just man-made rocks. So it was a logical and a fortunate and just a logical transition. So then I ended up working for a succession of companies basically doing advanced ceramics research. So for 30 years, I worked basically in what I'd call advanced ceramics none of which has anything to do with clay. It's all, there are other kinds of ceramics. Like for instance, most people don't realize but glass is considered a ceramic. So the field of all glass study is part of ceramics. Concrete and cement is actually part of ceramic. And so if if it's not a metal and it's not a plastic and it's not organic, it's basically considered a ceramic. So for 30 years, I worked for a variety of companies basically doing either corporate research for industrial products or aerospace type research for government contracts. Um, but all basically these unique kind of specialized kind of ceramics. I worked, for instance, for one of the more recent ones, I worked on a small contract that was part of the tiles for the space shuttle. And I worked on, uh, remember the original Apollo heat, the Apollo vehicles with the heat shield and it always show it reentering with the heat shield. Yeah. I worked for the company that developed the heat shield. Oh, that's cool. Um, And I worked on um, development of ceramic armor tiles for the helicopters in Vietnam. Oh, wow. I worked on development of the catalytic converter that's in your car. That's actually a chunk of ceramic, or ceramic pellets that's in your car. I worked on that when I worked for Ford for a while. Wow. And I worked on turbochargers, I worked, they're making ceramic turbochargers because you can operate the, the engine at higher temperatures. Yeah. So I worked on the development of ceramic turbocharger rotors for automobiles. That was part of Ford and some of the other companies. None of these, these items were consumer products. These were basically all for industrial products or components of some kind of machine or some kind of device
0: yeah.
1: or, or government research. So I ended up doing that for about 30 years. I was doing ceramics research. And I'd always been interested in, in arts and crafts but I'd never, I never had a chance to study it very much in school, but I'd done mostly on the side. And about 30 years ago now, I was living down in, in Potomac and in Bethesda area, yeah. and I happened to go down to Glen Echo Park, Glenico Park, it's a, great, it's a cultural arts park basically. It used to be an amusement park and then it was converted into a national park and then it sort of transitioned into a cultural arts park. Yeah. Every year they have a couple of music festivals that are fantastic and they're free. They have an Irish music festival which is like over a weekend and people come from all over the country to participate in this. Oh, and they also have a folk music festival that they do the same thing and they're free. And it's like three days long. So I happened to just go down there for the Folk Music Festival and I'm wandering around and there's this pottery studio and it's called Glen Echo Pottery. Yeah. And so I just, I sort of wandered in because I'd, I'd, I'd been going to a lot of craft shows and things like that, but I wandered into the, the pottery and, and a, one of the students, a woman kindly took about a half an hour to show me all around because I was interested in it because I'd been doing ceramics for my job, although a different form. And so she was really, really kind. She took me around, showed me everything and I, and I, I was instantly hooked. I've been thinking about a place where maybe I could take lessons but i'd never found one yeah the, the the guy that operates that operated then and he still operates is named jeff kirk and he does he did a great job because one of the things he did with this studio and this is like a lot of other studios where you can take classes but one of the things that he did was he created an environment where as a student you got to feel like you owned part of the studio and you got to feel like you really belonged there And he also had, um, he also, it was very unscheduled so that basically once he got to know you, you could come in and work anytime you wanted to. So if you were taking classes there, you could literally any other time that there wasn't something going on, you could go into the studio and work. He, He had a great sense of creating a community and it was incredibly successful. So I was there. I, I took classes there, and then I ended up teaching teaching classes. The there. student became the master. I well, I ended up yeah, I ended up teaching there for about but over a period of like twenty five years altogether. And I only recently, about five ten years ago, when I moved away, I, I basically pretty much stopped my affiliation with the place. But that's where I, essentially I learned how to throw, or originally learned, learned the, the pottery. How how is your
0: practice and your process? And you kind of somewhat hinted at that already. So you say you get inspiration from other artists occasionally. Uh, where all do you get your uh, th- inspiration from i think
1: most of i was thinking about this and, and it's only really been after after i've been doing pottery for a while but i think ultimately the thing i'm really i'm really in pursuit of beauty in of one kind or another it might be beautiful women or a beautiful stream or a beautiful tree or a beautiful leaf and i think really what i realized what i think my work is about or what i like to do is create something that when i look at it will try to recreate in me and hopefully in maybe somebody else the same feeling of sort of amazement and wonder that I get when I see something. And so I'm not a a narrative person. Like some kinds of art basically tells a story or some kinds of art is political. I have have a lot of political views, but I'm not interested in expressing them in the art. To me, the the, the art, my art and a lot of art to me is is reflecting and expressing and translating beauty of various kinds. So, so, So a lot of my inspiration comes from nature. Um, I've been heavily influenced in studying in the past from especially Asian ceramics, Japanese, Thai, Korean, Chinese, so forth. So a lot of, a lot of the stylistic things that I like to do are sort of based on, on some of the Asian and, and uh, the styles. Yeah, those
0: are very clean, too. And they're clean
1: and they're simple. I mean, there's, yeah. there's a great, I used to make, one of the things I used to do a number of years ago was I made a lot of pottery for Ikebana, which is Japanese flower arranging. And I didn't do the arranging myself, but I had to learn a lot about it in order to make the containers for it. And there was a saying that one of the, one of the women that I was working with who did a Cabana said that American flower arranging is you have a vase and you see how many flowers you can get in the vase. Um, and when you can't get any more in, you're done. Japanese flower arranging is you put flowers in a vase and when you can't take any more out, you're done. Oh, ah, wow. It's, so there's there's, a, there's this a,
0: works with negative space.
1: Yeah, a lot of negative space and and a lot of simplicity. Yeah. and so and I like a lot of clean lines and that sort of thing. So again, I like that. To me, that's very inspiring. And to me, that's also part of beauty, is is the simplicity and sort of the straightforwardness of not. It doesn't have to be very complex. And in some cases, the more simple and straightforward, the more beautiful it is to me, at least.
0: Yeah, so it, with some of your work, it looks like that you take impressions of things, like you have a couple of pieces that, or a series that you did for a while with a, a ferns that look like you, you didn't carve the ferns, but you basically uh, impressed in into the clay?
1: Is that yeah. right? Yeah, and that connects with the fact that because of my geology background, I'm also really interested in geology, and this is part of my love of nature, And in particular, this part of Maryland and um, and West Virginia has some really interesting geology to it. And a house that I have, a studio that I have here in Harper's Ferry, I have a large fern garden, basically. I didn't plant them, they were there. But one of the things that I love about ferns that, again, attracts me to them beside their own beauty is the fact that it's an ancient plant. It's a plant that's been around for millions of years. And so part of me is, again, is that reverence for this this organism that has existed this long. So yeah, so I made some work where basically I was using the fern as a resist where I could put the fern down. A stencil is basically where you have an opening, but this is a resist. So I'm putting this down as a resist and I paint a contrasting, color of clay over it with the clay that i've laid it on and then i can peel off the fern i have the fern showing through from the clay below and then a a contrasting usually a darker color around it and so i can pick up the impression of the veins and the texture of the fern but i can also get the color depending on how i i I color it later on so i like to do that a lot you is, is use textures and use some of the forms Um, from nature and I like actually in some cases to actually use them directly rather than try to sketch them or copy them I want to actually incorporate the actual item in it so I do that a lot and I'll make molds of things um, that sort of thing so
0: does the fern stay like inside the clay and and it gets burned off no I peel it off
1: just like like, as I say not exactly a stencil because in this case I want to I'm not creating an opening I peel off the fern and then go ahead and process the rest of the clay and then I'll turn that slab of clay that has this fern pattern on it into something. I'll make a dish out of it or do something and manipulate it further to make something out of it. Yeah. So I'm using it just to sort of create part of the design.
0: It really, with uh, some of those pieces, especially with the fern, is, is gives this prehistoric, ancient, almost timeless, with a lot of the works that I've seen that you've done that with. I've seen that you've had uh, made a couple of mugs that were looked like you had wood impressions, or uh, you did this kind of steampunk series for a while. Was that kind of the same uh, procedure that you did with... Because some of those were very detailed and ornate and beautiful it
1: was and it, s- similar and i guess the steampunk was um was inspired by the fact that essentially steampunk is victorian science or it's basically it's basically you know you think of it as like spaceships but put together with rivets yeah, um, and Jules Verne, for example, was one of the early practitioners. Though at the time when he was writing and and thing that wasn't considered called steampunk, it's more of a new a modern subculture, but he was basically doing steampunk. Yeah, and so part of it again is is the imagination involved because to me at least one of the aspects of steampunk there's a story that goes along with it behind it, so it's not just the item is not just a freestanding item. There's there's a story or a background to it which you which is part of the creation you create this background to explain the piece yeah so a lot of these so some of these steampunk pieces that I made I was combining sort of my love of some of these these natural forms and sort of some of this sort of heavy industrial kind of science fiction like boilerplate science fiction sort of thing um, that I could combine all in one pieces so it was actually it was great opportunity to sort of bring together a number of different sort of influences a number of different ideas. So that's,
0: I guess, what you could say is where you got influenced from from people. Yeah, yeah. Um, What drew you to go to the Asian style of ceramics?
1: I think, again, I think I have to give a lot of credit to Jeff Kirk, the guy that ran, the fellow, the artist. He's a real artist. He's a potter and an artist that, that ran and still runs Glen Echo Pottery at Glen Echo Park because he was strongly influenced by asian and, and japanese ceramics and so when i learned a lot of the early influences was from him and, and then i learned more about it and and kind of adopted it I, i've often wondered if i had been exposed to a different sort of instructor or a different sort of approach to ceramics whether i would have followed that or not i i don't know the answer to that but it turns out that this really fit my personality anyway so it was a perfect match because of my uh my engineering background and, and so i've got a little different approach to making ceramic art doing a lot of tests and a lot of exploration most of my work i consider actually i mean i kid about it but almost everything i make now is a test because in everything, and I'm not a production potter. If I make two things alike, that's a rarity. But so everything, I'm, everything I make, I'm exploring something different. I'll make one of something, and I'll decide I want to make some kind of a change to it, or, I, or I'm curious and say, well, I want what happened if I changed this, and so I'll make a change and I'll make another piece and explore that. So every single piece I make is, in essence, some kind of an exploration. And a lot of that, and I do a lot more testing of glazes and clay materials than I think than a lot of other potters do, only because. I just—that's something I love to do, and it's in my—it comes from the engineering background and the research background, where you're constantly doing a lot of tests. Yeah, so I, I mean, as, and I, I keep—I keep rigorous notebooks of everything. I, just about everything I make, I have—I have, a, I have a, in a notebook written somewhere, so that I can recall it. seen good examples of this, where I might have done, I developed a glaze or something twenty years ago, and I just developed it and I looked at it and said, "Yeah, that's nice," but I'm, I'm not sure what I want to do with it right now. And twenty years later, I might say, you know. I remember I had a blue glaze that would be perfect for this piece I'm working on now and because of the the way I keep my records, I can go back and find it and I can recreate it. And to me, that works really well. The other thing I found also is I I literally have some pieces that I've worked on for 20 years and I've made some pieces where I get them up to a certain point and I realized that I had intended to, to finish them a certain way with certain colors or certain glazes. And then when I got there, I thought, you know, that's not going to do it. It's not either my view of what the, the project had changed or I, I was able to get a more graphic idea of what it was going to look like and I thought, no, I don't want to do that. So I'd put them aside and, and then I'd go on with other work and other research until I could think back about them, say. Now this would be suitable for this work and I had a good example of that, I had a platter that I made about 20 years ago and I got it to the point where it was ready to be glazed and fired and I really just couldn't decide what I wanted to do with it and I didn't want to ruin it and so I put it aside 20 years after I made it I would fire it and finish the piece and I've done that a number of times putting things aside until I'm really decide what I want to do that's appropriate for the piece partially because of my my industrial background but also just because I'm curious I've probably tried just about every ceramic process that there is at one point or another. And I don't necessarily pursue them all to great depth, but I try them to find out a little bit about it and to see whether, is that something I can add to my portfolio in a sense, or is that something that I can use in the future? So that I have, I'm able to go back and say, yeah, okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm learning about wood firing, which I hadn't done for a long time. Now I'm learning about it and then I can make the connection and say, ah, now this fits with my goals that I had for that piece 20 years ago. Only at the time I didn't know it because I hadn't even gotten into that field. So I do a lot of that also.
0: So uh, when you refer to wood firing, how's that different from when I've seen kilns in in a room? Uh, You have a room
1: off to the side over here, I guess that plugs into the wall, that's electric? This is one of the other great things that I love about ceramics and pottery. There are so many different directions you can go. Pottery is an incredibly process-heavy art. There are so many different steps to making pottery or ceramic art and so many different processes involved. There's also a lot of science involved in it. And so there, at, every, at every stage in the process, you have almost an unlimited variety of choices that you can make in terms of moving forward. And one of those, the final ones, is the firing method. And so there are, there are lots of different ways of firing the final ceramic, where basically you're either maturing the glazes and creating this glass coating, which, which is the glaze, and you're also helping the ceramic to get harder and denser and stronger. The different firing methods create different color palettes and different surface textures and different looks to the ceramic. So you have a choice of how you want to fire it, depending on, again, this is another contribution you can make to the work in terms of the surface texture or the color. Now, a lot of people use electric kilns, but up until the early 1900s, Everything was fired by burning something. Yeah. There were no electric kilns. That's a good point. So everything, everything, it might have been burned at a low temperature, like in a campfire, or it might have been in a big industrial furnace with wood or coal or gas, but everything was fired by burning something. So we can still do that. So we have electric kilns, we have gas-fired kilns, we have, I have a propane kiln in the backyard. You can fire kilns by burning wood. I have a small wood-burning kiln. The goal is still the same to fire the ceramic and finish it and help the glazes mature and become that glassy coating and also add some color and texture to the work. But you have all these choices as to, again, how you want to add to the, that's part of the creation of the work.
0: So you create something, um, let's say a a nice like sushi tray tray for, serving a sushi. So you made the trade, you, you let the clay dry out, right? Is that the, I'm getting yeah, that?
1: Yeah, typically, I mean, the, the basic process steps so is you make something out of the clay, whether it's thrown on the wheel or whether it's, there's another whole area called hand building, which is everything but the wheel, yeah. or, or even sculpture. So you make yeah. something out of the clay, you dry the clay out, and that, that can be a very involved process depending on what you're making, but you let it dry. Then typically, you fire it the first time in the kiln, and that hardens the clay and makes it handleable but it's not it's not its ultimate strength then you would put on a lot of the surface decoration maybe the colors and stains or glazes and then you'd fire it a second time to a lot higher temperature and that does the final maturation of the clay and it gets to its final hardness and strength whatever you put on the surface coating also matures it might become the glazes or the final stains so in each one of those steps they're also sort of sub-steps wow
0: meaningly i i paint Mm-hmm. So I know a lot about that. To me, uh, ceramics and pottery has always been somewhat of a, a dark arts <laughs> for me. It is, even if you're doing it. Though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of advice would
1: you give a fellow artist a ceramic artist or potters or or just general artists well the one thing that i found it's very practical but the one thing i found and i mentioned earlier is keep a record of what you do when i started out doing this um and and it wasn't just because i was i was doing exploration and testing but i'd make something create something and then later and i think well i'll remember how i did it because i really liked the way it came out and i'll remember it and then It wouldn't take very long before I realized that I don't—I don't have the slightest idea what I did. It was bad in two situations. If I really liked it, I couldn't reproduce it. And to me, this would even apply to painting. If you're mixing paint on a palette or something and you create a color that you like, you'd like—I'd like to know at least how did I do that? So that if I wanted to do that, what—and even what brand of paint did I use? What materials did I use to create it? That's true. And so it's the same thing. So one thing I would really recommend is keep records, even though it's kind of a pain. And, you, and a lot of people, I know potters that I know that think it's taking them away from the creative process. And to me, it's a major, because they're not actually sitting there working with the clay, you're sitting there doing book work essentially. But to me, it's a huge contribution actually to your creativity to be able to go back and look at what you did and see what went right, what went wrong, what did you do? If something really worked well, how did you do it? And I'm, I'm, I've been doing ceramics now for about over 30 years and I've, I still go back and read, re, I, I have a file cabinet full of notebooks, but I still go back and refer to them because I'll remember that, oh yeah, I, did, I got this great glaze or this great form that I made 20 years ago or something. What was it? I want to pick up on it again. Yeah. So I'm constantly revisiting also old ideas and saying, well, you know, what, how much further can I take it? Yeah. At the time, I took it as far as I could. I thought that I could take it. And something might happen, I might get an idea where I could say, you know, I can, I can bring this further along. But I need to go back to find out what I did, and then how can I pick it up and, and continue with? So that's one thing I would recommend. I'd really recommend keep keep records, even though it's kind of tedious, and you think it's it's a sidetrack and it's diverting you from making art. Yeah. But to me, it's a, it's a, it's an important contribution. And yeah. the other thing I the other thing I'd say is don't be afraid to make mistakes and don't be afraid to fail, because at least for me, I learn a lot more by my failures, and then analyzing them afterwards and saying, okay. What happened? And is there and also is there some good in the failure? One of the things that's really interesting about ceramics is it's I think it's a little less controlled than some other art forms. There's still a lot of serendipity in ceramics, especially when it comes to the firing process. We have a fair amount of control, but not absolute total control, which is a good thing. And so happy accidents happen. And again, you want to know, you want to be able to look at it and say, well, okay, this, this is a complete failure, except for the fact that I got this certain color that developed on this side of this piece and I don't know why, but I've never seen it before and I'd like to use that. So to me, the failure and the exploration is also a really important part of it is get out of the box. Don't just, don't just, don't just keep doing what you're comfortable with doing.
0: Yeah, cannot agree more with that is definitely get out of your comfort zone.
1: Well, the other thing I've run into along those lines is that I think, and this is true just I guess in life in general. A lot of people are afraid to admit they don't know something. Potters and other artists, where they get to a certain level in their development and their, or their career, and they have problems or they have things they don't know, but they're afraid to admit that they don't know them because they, they think that other people think that they should know it by that point. And oh, therefore, yeah. they can't get help or they can't get the answers that they need. Yeah. And so I found there's a real reluctance, because I taught, I taught at Hood College for 13 years, and I've taught at a number of places. Yeah. And I've seen a real reluctance from a lot of artists to ask help or ask questions. And there are people out there that know the answers, but they're afraid of what they're going to look like, and therefore they're stuck they can't get past that point. In some cases, it's a serious problem. I, I, I knew a potter in Maine, yeah. a production potter. He was feeding his family by making his pottery. It was what's called functional work, which is plates, bowls, mugs, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I went and visited him one time and he had an enormous scrap pile outside his pottery, a smashed pottery. And I said, I was trying to be tactful, but I said, you know, a lot of things are not coming out. And he said, yeah, he said, I lose about a third of my work which I was stunned. And he just said, well, that's the pottery business. And I said, no, it's not the pottery business. <laughs> and so we talked for a while and I said, well, would you mind if I made a suggestion? Because I said, well, show me your process. And it turns out he was drying things wrong or in a, not in the best way. And the problem with a lot of, another, this is another thing unique to ceramics is a lot of the problems don't show up until the very end. Ah. And so we, even when he was drying his pots, a lot of his pots were cracking but they, that wasn't showing up until he fired them. Well, at that point, he's got his full commitment of time and materials and money and energy in the pots, and then he discards them. That's one of the unfortunate things about ceramics, that happens a lot. But it was a simple thing, and, and that he had accepted this method he was doing into drying, and he, didn't, and he sort of didn't go any further. So he was just living with this problem. Huh. And I was stunned, because was, that, was, that was their only source of income. Ooh was the pottery that he made and a third of it he was throwing out.
0: Oh geez. Yeah. I, so I I know where you're coming from. I agree with you. There's nothing wrong with not knowing what you don't know and and admitting that. uh, I know in my own practice, I definitely don't know everything and I usually tell people that all the time. It's like, I don't know. Let's find out.
1: Right. And And I think the important thing is let's find out.
0: Yeah. And I look at it, too, is that I am continuing to learn as well. Mm-hmm. It is a process that should not be stagnant once you've gone to school and learned how to do something or taking classes, on how to do it. You should continue to keep growing and learning, which is uh, kind of a great segue about Washington Street uh, Studios. Mm-hmm. So how did you, and uh, briefly tell us who Dennis is, but uh, how did you and Dennis kind of came up with this idea of Washington Street Studios?
1: Well, Dennis, Dennis is my partner, Dennis Stark is my partner in developing the studio. And he and I were both members of the Potter's Guild of Frederick. And we got talking one time, we realized that talking together that both had an interest in recreating some kind of a community where potters could interact. Dennis and I kind of almost simultaneously were were searching for something and we had sort of the same idea and we just started realizing that we were both also at a point in our lives and a career where we could do it, where we could afford to do it and we wanted to do it. So I have my own little studio over in Harpers Ferry. I've been here for a few years so I started thinking that maybe this would be a good area for a studio and we both had this sort of longing again to sort of create some kind of a a community of artists. One of the things I realized that, and, and Dennis and I realized the same thing, there are a lot of artists around, well, all over the country, but even around here, a lot of artists. Yep. But most of them work in isolation. Most of them working in their own little studio in their garage or their basement, and they have very little contact with other artists. Yep. And there's no mechanism, other than a studio like this, where like Glen Echo or someplace we can take classes, there's no mechanism for people to get together. So one of, one of Dennis's and my goals, we, we started off kind of independently thinking the same thing was, I'd love to recreate or create some kind of a community of artists where people could interact at a little different level maybe than possibly at Glen Echo where, you, where you're not all beginning artists, but where you can develop and grow and still and, and interact with other artists and get inspiration and so forth.
0: Wow, well, with, with that, Bill, I, I wanna say thank you for doing this interview. Um, okay, so. well, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, thank you. To say thank you to Phil for taking his time for the interview. I also want to say thank you to you for tuning in. If you want more information about Phil, you can go to hfclay.com and you could go to our website, artboxdmv.com, to our Instagram at artboxdmv, and to our Twitter handle at artdmv. Until next time, thank you.